guys, it's Sean O'Connell, the managing editor at Cinema Blend and co-host of the Real Blend podcast with a very special episode that we are bringing you where we got to sit down with writer, director and actor Dan Levy for his directorial debut Good Grief. Uh, the best thing about Good Grief is that it started playing at the end of last year, but now it is going readily available for more people to go and check out. It did get a limited theatrical run, but now it's available for you to check out on the Netflix streaming service. Uh, and as you will find out over the course of our conversation, Dan took a lot of stuff that he learned um, while directing a few episodes of Schitt's Creek, but also just appearing on that show and figuring out the arc of the characters um, that changed a lot from the early days of Schitt's Creek to where they ended up to become so much more emotional uh, and so much more relatable uh, to, to people instead of these sort of broad sitcom caricatures. Um, we learned to really care for those characters and love that family. And Dan brings a lot of that knowledge to the to the part that he plays in Good Grief. Um, I don't think it's giving too much away to say that it's it's him dealing with his character, dealing with a significant loss of a loved one um, and how he moves forward in his year following. Thanks to um, help that he gets from two of his closest friends. Um, but it was really interesting to sit down with Dan and talk about his process, how he figured out how to write how he included very specific locations from around uh, Paris and London, and then the complications that came with almost including those locations in Paris and London. Um, a lot of the things that he figured out as a first time filmmaker. And then he gets into some really in-depth conversation about whether or not um, if he directs again, uh, he, whether he would be the lead <laughs> in the film because of the challenges that come with that. So, uh, you know, we love Dan Levy. We think he's an extremely entertaining guy. Loved him in Schitt's Creek. Uh, and we're, we're very excited to see what he was going to do as a director after we saw good grief we knew we had to get him on the show we knew you guys would appreciate the conversation so without further ado this is dan levy joining us on the real blend podcast to talk about his new film available right now on netflix titled good grief i'm staying in a hotel you know there's like these hotels now where it's like god forbid a light actually be turned on <laughs> i know like there's there's mood lighting and then there's like can i actually find the bathroom um, but um, or like a table for my laptop. There's no more tables; they don't exist anymore. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no, no. God forbid there be a table. No, you're, you're you're sitting on the floor. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I'm Sean. That's Kevin. We're part of the Real Blend Podcast. Hi, everybody. And we're really happy to be able to talk about this film, uh, especially now that it's coming to Netflix. And and I know you've been doing a ton of press about it. We're going to try to find some angles uh, that hopefully you haven't <laughs> talked at length about. Um, no, listen, there was a writer's strike that almost like took this whole press tour out. So I'm I'm there is a, a huge amount of gratitude to be able to speak on uh, about the movie. Good. Um, I wanted to just start here. It's really important. Um for this movie to make Oliver as human of a character as possible. And mm. you get a limited amount of time to do that. So I wanted to, you to just talk about the process of in the limited time that you had helping us to understand as much as we could about Oliver, knowing that he would cast a shadow over the rest of the story. Of course. And I think the other thing too, is like, how do you do that without really schlocky expositional dialogue about yeah. who these people are and what they mean to each other. So yeah, it, it really uh, honestly came down to casting and you needed someone who was so charming and magnetic and could really hold that space, you know, for the brief amount of time that they were on camera um, mm -hmm. and embed themselves into people's heads and into people's hearts so that they are ever present through the rest of the movie. And that came in the form of Luke Evans and, mm -hmm. 
you know, he's like one of those people who's just a charmer. And he's such a huge personality. And he's such a, I mean, he's like a huge guy. He's gigantic. <laughs> but like so handsome and charismatic. It was like, it was wild to be in his presence. But he he read the script and he really responded to it and wanted to be a part of it. And um, he just had that star quality mm-hmm. to really exemplify the fact that like, this was a person who could easily sweep my character off their feet and mm-hmm. give them a life that is filled with distraction and glamor and fun. And that was, so it it came down to Luke and he really kind of stepped, we shot with him, I want to say for maybe four days, Mm -hmm. three days. Oh my gosh, wow. The Christmas party took, I think two days to shoot. Um, And he just, I mean, he came in like it was, like it ain't no thing and just Mm -hmm. crushed day after day after day and he's holding court in this party just like you know delivering lines and having to pour people's wine you know fill up people's glasses and sing and he's just a pro leading a group sing-along and having it be authentic is not easy (laughs) not easy at all and that was kind of that was the fear right like you know finding a, a group of background performers that weren't just going to kind of glance at the camera every time it passed mm. by them. Um, <laughs> we rehearsed the song and we rehearsed the, the, the choir parts of, of, of it for a, a full day. And I think it was the camaraderie that was formed by all of us being there together, like our, our key cast and then all the, the party goers that led to this. There was a comfort when we walked on set because we'd done mm. it before and we got to know each other and meet each other. I was, you know, cringy party scenes are really tough. Mm. And mm. I just tried everything I could to to try, to, especially if it's the first, you know, this is the beginning of the movie. So if yeah. you, you know what I mean? If it's like, if you just strike out there, you're sets the tone screwed for the rest of the for the rest of the film but for sure yeah it was it was a it was just i knew when we were shooting it that it felt really lived in and and you know at, at least that part of the movie was going to was going to be really fun and engaging dan i've always been fascinated by like the choices that actors and filmmakers make for like the little details of characters depending on the way the clothing the shoes and i remember Mm -hmm. this is not like to name drop at all but i remember years ago i was in i had a chance to interview denzel washington and we were talking about the little things about a characters and he goes when i put this character's shoes on that's when i found who the character was and i was like that that was such an interesting thing and then, so I look at you in real life and you're, you're very well known for the thick glasses that you wear. And I, I love those glasses. And the reason <laughs> I bring that up is because Mark's glasses are very different from the glasses yeah. I generally see you wear. Um, yeah, and I don't know you outside of interviews or, or press and things like sure. that. But how how important is a detail like that to a character? And how do you decide the like the glasses Mark's going to wear because they're different from your own. Well, you try them out. I mean, you know, it, 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 for me, the 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 importance of costume started with Schitt's Creek and clothing these characters uh, again allows for you to not have to write a lot. Mm. You know, any opportunity that you could squeeze in the visual elements of the storytelling that can reveal character, that can reveal nuance about who people are and and what they want and how they choose to to present themselves in the world. And that goes for production design as well. It goes for the homes that they live in and the way that they choose to decorate and all of these things. They're so important because their character exposition without Mm -hmm. having to write it 
part of it's laziness on my my account <laughs> and part of it is just I have such a, a, a phobia of bad expositional dialogue. You know, we've all gotten those scripts where it's like, okay, do I, I need to say all of this about myself? Like, <laughs> is there any acting that I can do? Or is it just <laughs> me talking about who I am? So costume in particular, I think is such an opportunity to squeeze character for everything that you, for everything beyond the dialogue. Mm. Um, and, you know, Mark is, is, is far more, I think, just as a person, like more modest than I am. I think he's more of a wallflower. I think he's also more practical. And so those choices of what he would wear and the glasses that he would wear, for me, were, were more from a practical standpoint. They had style. They had, because he's an artist. Mm. So he's always, he's always keeping in mind the aesthetic of things, but it's not, he doesn't want the look at me thing that I guess I do. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's interesting. It really is because yeah. when you, when you go quieter. shopping for glasses, yeah, I, I, that's what I was trying to get at. Like it, they, they're like it, it's again, it's almost a it's a quieter glasses. You're hundred percent right. I was wondering. It's a quieter person. I had to yeah. physically like train myself out of the habits that I had formed playing David Rose on Schitt's Creek. Hmm. He yeah. was a completely. I mean, Mark in this movie is so still and so reserved and so avoidant, yeah. coming from eighty episodes of a television show where no reaction was too small. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was almost like I had to physically be aware of how little I had to do and how mm -hmm. still I had to be in order to be this person and how hard that was at times to kind of rid yourself of the habits that are formed of playing a character that is so elastic and so um, larger than life. Uh, real quick, I want to follow up on that, because what you just said reminds me of the line in the film about muscle memory, because oh, yeah. the, there's that beautiful concept for people who haven't seen it, where you talk about this idea of when you lose somebody, you, your, your brain's not used to the concept of not wanting to love them in that moment. Yeah. And like, so like, could you compare that at all to leaving Shit's Creek and kind of like the muscle memory of that character and kind of like finding the muscle memory of a new character? For sure. As an actor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a rare thing to be able to play a character for as long as I did and still be excited by them mm. and continue to add to them. And by the end, I mean, you know, the, the character of, of David Rose, when we found him in the pilot episode is so different than where we, where we find him at the end. He's, he's way more comfortable in his skin, but as a result, the performance got bigger and more, mm reactive and so yeah it's like it's in me it's physically kind of programmed in me to to to, to do the wrong thing as an actor you know what I mean like it's one of those rare occurrences where it's like can we try that but like really go bigger now um you know in, in drama you know I'm, I'm I'm acting opposite Ruth Nega and Himesh Patel like I can't be doing what I've done mm. around like wonderfully subtle gorgeous film actors it's a very yeah. different craft so i think also being with them you know when you're around unbelievable talent like like those two it only forces you to to keep up really mm -hmm. and to improve and to observe and to you know to strive to kind of you know not embarrass yourself mm. uh but Dan, I do want to ask about a specific scene, though, where you're editing 
and your use of reaction is is so flawless. And that's when Caitlin's giving the eulogy mm. at the at the funeral. Um, and you talk about not having to write certain things, but each line that you do write for her character in that one mm. only emphasizes what, what I think is that, you know, she's this vapid Hollywood type, essentially. Right. Um, can you talk about creating that character? Uh, and then when you cut to you for the reactions of the things <laughs> that she's saying in the moment, because for us, it's so painful, you know, like, is she, why is she using this opportunity, this platform to to emphasize, like, am I going to get the sequels that I think I deserve? Kind of thing? Right. <laughs> yeah. So Caitlin Deaver makes a, a very small appearance in the, in the movie as, as an actress who plays the character that my husband had written in a, in a book series. It was really important, I think, for me to show the stark contrast and the discomfort of what actually happens in situations like a funeral or, you know, oftentimes it's wedding speeches, moments mm -hmm. that should be really joyful. And then someone comes up and somehow sabotages and you're you're stuck as an audience member, either, you know, in this case, it was a, a, a funeral having to to see a train wreck in in real life happening in front of you in the most inopportune time so humor plays such a, a, a crucial part in sadness for me because sometimes at my lowest i i can only laugh it was important to have that contrast of of a, a funny dynamic which i mean it, it inherently it's quite uncomfortable but mm -hmm. it allows the audience a little bit of laughter and a little bit of levity in between moments of, of great like sadness. So mm -hmm. we edited that scene. I want to say for weeks, no kidding, really? just that, just that moment because mm -hmm. the tone, the contrast, it couldn't be too big. Mm -hmm. There was much more of, of Caitlin's eulogy that, that we ended up trim, trimming down. Um, it was about looking at the contrast between the bookends of of her eulogy and then David Bradley's eulogy, which really brings us back to um, to Earth and to a very mm. real place. Um, mm. Figuring out the subtlety of those reactions when they happened, when we cut to the friends, when we involved the audience, when we stayed on her, whether it's a close up or a wide shot, how much it was this dance of what was let's go too far and then let's rein it back. Let's go too less and then let's bring it back. Like it was, mm. it, it was this constantly ever changing um, moment in the movie um, that, that eventually we, we would move past. And then, you know, we'd watch the film a couple weeks later in a, you know, in a rough cut and say, okay, let's go back and, and tweak it a little bit more. Interesting. It speaks also to, to Caitlin's talent because she never made it funny. She came in mm. and really treated that person like a real person, which allowed right. for the discomfort mm. to force laughter as opposed to the audience being aware that I was actively trying to make them laugh. It's right. this whole dance ultimately of like tone. And um, so, yeah, it took a long time to get to that sliver of of her time in this in this movie. It really works. Yeah, it really works. Thanks. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. 
Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. I'm, I'm so glad Sean brought that up because, uh, Dan, I spoke to you for the television junket a few weeks ago. And, and one of the yeah. things that I brought up to you was that shot at the at the funeral where you are in focus and Hamesh and Ruth are behind you out of focus, which I found to be a narrative explanation of your isolation and your friends sure. having your back. But you kind of pushing them a little bit out of your life, out of focus. And. I, this, since you're directing this film, I, I'm very interested to know about your relationship to the frame and the lens choices and things like that. And I know those are all technical things and, and you can we can get really nerdy and dive into those ideas, which I, I love that type of filmmaking. But I'm just curious from your perspective, when, when you design a shot like that, where you are in focus and your friends are out of focus, that does speak narratively to your themes. And I just wonder what your discussions are with your DP about finding how your frame will look and how you will mess with focus. Are you, how involved are you in those exact discussions about like knowing the framing? Yeah. Ula Berkland, who, who shot the movie uh, and I had like, we had to have a ton of conversations about it because the, I, the way that I approached the, the direction versus the acting was that I kind of needed to know in advance how everything would look mm. so that when we set up the scene and actually shot it, we pre-planned it in advance so that, I could just approve the shot. We knew what we were shooting. I would then go in front of the camera, do our first take. I would come back around, screen the take, not for performance really, but more for, did we get the shot? Like, does the shot look the way we need it to look? Give any notes that needed to be given. And then I would go back in front of the camera and stay there hmm. and trust Ula mm -hmm. to know what we needed to get and to change and to make subtle changes. And he would, he would change the focal length sometimes if we needed to kind of adjust certain things or he'd, he'd come to me with an idea and I would trust him. It had to be that kind of relationship because if I was going back and forth every time between every take, not only would it lose us so much time, but it also would break my relationship with the actors that mm. I was in the scene with. So yeah, we pre-planned every shot as best we could with a with an eye to it wasn't so much the specificity of how it was going to look but rather what do we need to feel yes. by way of these scenes and that's what led to 
the, sh the shots. It was like, okay, here we need, and I would walk him through, we went through, you know, the entire script many, many, many times for just emotional passes. Like mm -hmm. in this, I really want to make sure that we're, we know to what you were saying that we know the friends are there. And in a way they almost are acting as like an angel on a devil on his shoulder as right. well as these kind of loyal companions. But it, it still needs to be a moment of isolation. Tracking Mark's willingness to open up to his friends was also a change in the way that we included them in the in the frames. And when did we when was it handheld and when were we on sticks and what you know, all of that would had to be had to be done in advance. Um, and your relationship with your DP obviously is like everything. if you didn't everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> it was my first film and I'm yeah. still learning. And it required a DP who had such patience and such a passion for the for the film to to help me along. You know, I mean, there there are there's a whole world where I could have been with someone who really bullied me through <laughs> through this process. Mm, sure. And yeah. and tried to take advantage of the fact that this was my first time. But it speaks to his 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 creativity and his generosity and um and I think his 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 excitement about being a part of someone's first yeah. film, you know, Serving it, it a really vision. was this like, yeah. it was just a great experience. Those times, the times with him sitting down and going through the script and yeah, it was just, it was just wonderful. It was just, just wonderful. Quick, quick follow-up real quick, real, real fast yeah. on that. Cause you, you said handheld to, to sticks and I've been I, I noticed that and I and I find that really interesting when a when a film could be on sticks the whole time and then all of a sudden you jolt to like a handheld shot. It's jarring. And, and mm -hmm. but in an immersive way, like like how do you decide that? Because that, that is fascinating to me, because like when you go off when you go off the shoulder, there's such a rawness to it. It's it, it's it's almost like unsafe. Like you took the the things off the bowling lanes and now you're just yeah. bowling. And I just wonder like, I've always found that interesting when filmmakers do that. It had to really it, it was it was completely tied to the emotional like state of the characters that were that or the character that was the priority of the scene mm. and you know i think we we used it a lot when we when in the later in the movie around the dinner table and when 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 everything was unraveling and mm. there didn't seem to be any boundaries anymore on what was safe and what wasn't like, you know, once they have that hard talk in the apartment in Paris, everything was a little freer and everything was a little more chaotic. So Ooh. it really came down to, yeah, just like, what's the emotional state of this person? And do we want to be in the room with them or do we want to be observing them? It's cool. I love stuff like that. I always love stuff like that. Sorry, Sean. Go so do I. I mean, that's, <laughs> the, that's the great like joy of it all was, yeah. was having access to someone who's such a great, dp you know and, yeah. and who was who walked me through the process of all of it and and even in terms of language too you know like i did a ton of research and read as many books as i possibly could before getting ready for the movie but it it, it actually takes conversation to really mm -hmm. understand and it takes yeah. someone who's who's willing to let you in and and allow you to not know things mm. i do well, feel like that was what made this whole experience so special for me was I never once felt like I was in over my head because everyone around me made made me feel like 
we're going to get through this and it's going to be and it's going to be great. Well, Dan, I'm genuinely curious um, in your next directorial effort. Do you want to star in it? It feels like you take on a lot and you didn't give me the opportunity to just kind of learn on the job as a director. You know, you had to you wore two big hats. Yeah, well, I I had directed like a bunch of episodes of my TV show, which I think is what gave me the confidence to walk into this situation and like assume the responsibility of a director. I, I really mm-hmm. believe any project that comes to me, the first question I ask is like, am I the right person for the job? Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's because if I'm not going to show up and do the best job I I can and know that I'm right for this situation, then you're taking mm-hmm. a job away from someone who deserves it more. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's always going to be a relationship to the storytelling, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, yeah, it's tough. It's it's <laughs> tough and grueling. Well, and I've always kind of laughed at when I've seen certain direct uh, like cast members on a show direct an episode. They're yeah. usually like so and so is going downtown this week, you know, and then they're gone <laughs> for the episode. And yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, because they're helming it. That's why yeah, they're on vacation. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that was not the case with the show. I mean, I think at this point I, I waited four and a half, four and a half seasons into the show mm-hmm. before I started directing again because I didn't know enough. Mm-hmm. I needed to learn. I needed to observe. I needed to talk to our crew. I needed to understand what it was that I was going to do if I was going to direct. And so, you know, at that point, show running a television show is almost a form of direction in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to constantly be aware of how things look and how things are supposed to feel and what what a character wants. And so by the time that I, I took the and I co-directed the first episode of our show, which was a, a Christmas episode um, mm. again, so that I wouldn't overstep so that I wouldn't take on more than I needed to. I wanted the experience, but I also wanted to do that with someone at first to kind of ease me into it. Um, but I knew the show and it was the mm, same yeah. experience with this movie. I wrote the screenplay and I knew that, anyone else who would direct this movie would ultimately have me like hovering in the background, pacing, <laughs> questioning everything they were doing. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So yeah. Do I think I would put myself in it probably in a smaller role next time? <laughs> I, mean, I, don't know. I, I loved you. I loved you as the lead in this man. You, I, mean, I, I, I did. Know. Yeah. I, you might, you might need to be a lead again. You might need to do it again. <laughs> Thanks. You know, I appreciate um, that. One of the most profound scenes in the film for me was the Monet sequence, because I, I mm. didn't just honestly know that about Monet's life, that he had, mm. all, had all that loss and then painted these masterpieces. And then the, as you're walking through, um, I, I, I guess I'll be a little more vague about this, but this this, this is going to be running post your release. But there's yeah. some beautiful paintings at the end of this film of your characters. Yeah. And I was just curious who did those and, and like what, what your involvement was in that process of like, because they're very specific and we see a lot of characters. We see one of you. I think yours is the last shot. Yeah. Um, so I'm just trying to remember. I, I wanted to know like what your process was of that. And like how 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 crazy was that to see your characters in painting form or art form like that? I must have been it was cool. amazing. Well, you know, there's um, our Novel was character in the movie uh, asks a question early on to, to my character, which is essentially like when he tells him that he stopped painting because my character was you know for those that haven't seen it is a painter in the, or was in in the film and, and stopped mm-hmm. after his mother died um and he asks why he stopped painting and i say because it was too painful and he said well isn't art just a kind of commemoration of pain mm-hmm. and so art plays a big 
part of this movie and that the Monet scene when they're walking through the Monet's mm. is another example of of uh, art being a, a kind of commemoration of pain. And and I knew that the movie was going to end with Mark returning to his painting. And the very first call that I made when the movie was greenlit before any casting, before any crew was to Chris Knight, who is an unbelievable painter out of Canada, who mm. I have long loved. In fact, I own a couple uh, of his works and um, and I called him out of the blue. We'd never spoken before, but we followed each other on Instagram. And I asked if he would do this. I walked him through the movie and what I wanted from it. And um, it's funny because he had mentioned to me that a week before I called, he was having a conversation with a friend of his about how much he wanted to do what Francesco Clemente did on in Great, Great Expectations, mm. which was to ghost paint someone's wow. work in a film. Oh my and gosh. so a week later, wow! I was calling him, essentially asking him to do the same thing. Oh, and wow. he said yes. And I, the minute he said yes, I knew that the end of the movie was going to work. Oh my gosh. It's hard to set a movie around a conclusion that is someone else's paintings when you yeah. don't know who's painting those paintings. It's a big <laughs> risk. But in my mind, when I was writing the script, I was thinking of his work. Wow. So I think part of it was if I could get him, then I knew the end would work. And he fortunately Mm. said yes. And we worked very closely in terms of what I wanted those paintings to look and feel like. He has such a singular like aesthetic too. He plays with color in these really dynamic ways. And he's so, it's just his, he does portraits better than anyone else. And And we figured out the paintings and he, and we took photos and we sent them to him and he kind of sent us sketches. And, and funnily enough, we flew him to London um, to be in the gallery scene at the end of the movie. So he is the gallery. So if you watch the movie back, he is behind the counter as the like manager of the gallery. That's amazing. Um, That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like a little, it was a little Easter egg. A little cameo. Um, Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. (laughs) He also coached me through the scene when I'm starting to paint again, like the the sketching of like Mm -hmm. the projection and then the sketching on top of it. He was there to to make sure that what I was doing actually looked real. Real. Because there's Mm -hmm. nothing worse than, you know, some artist at home watching me badly like yeah. <laughs> thinking well this person has no idea what Did, they're talking didn't they, about didn't in titanic when dicaprio's doing the drawing isn't that james cameron's james hands? cameron's hand yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's james yeah, yeah. cameron's hands drawing kate oh winslet like when they cut to the close-up it's like it, probably for that exact reason because dicaprio maybe didn't i don't know if he can't draw yeah. but that i thought that was really funny i don't know but if anyway. we had it well i you know I don't know if we had a budget necessarily for someone else's hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually James Cameron's hands in yeah, exactly. grief. Yeah, breaking news. Right. I will get you out of here on this one, and and we thank you so much for your time, Dan. But there's a story that I started to read um, from one of your producers, um, and we have a lot of filmmakers who listen to the show who love learning about other people's obstacles. And I wanted to hear your side of the story of having to shoot at the um, French Ferris wheel, the Parisian Ferris wheel, uh, because oh, of the availability of it um, and and you having to get what you needed to get in a very brief amount of time in a very public space. I know people will benefit from hearing uh, how you overcame that. Let me just say this. (laughs) It's a risk to write a Ferris wheel scene. 
Okay. <laughs> and, ex- and expect to shoot it on an actual Ferris wheel in the same in the same way that it's a risk to shoot a scene in the Lorangerie in Paris surrounded right. by Monet's. Right. <laughs> I don't know how we were lucky enough to secure these locations because frankly, if we weren't able to secure those locations, they were really um I would have to I would have to go into that script and really rework some things. Yeah. So we were very lucky. The mm. the Ferris wheel in Paris, the story is we were, we had, uh, they had given us approval. I believe we'd paid to, to own the Ferris wheel for a few hours. Oh, to you be bought able to all the seats it. out? That's Well, we cool. kind of, yeah, we like, we rented it out huh. for the night so that we could shoot on there and not have to worry about anything. Yeah. I don't listen. It's not my place. I don't know anything about the Ferris wheel people, but like, <laughs> I'm sure they're beautiful. <laughs> it was a, it was a bit shady, gentlemen. <laughs> it was a bit, it was a bit shady. Um, I don't even know if I, I, we might have actually paid and they just kept the money and then said no. But the night before we were about to shoot this scene on the Ferris wheel, we heard that we can still shoot on the Ferris wheel, but instead of shutting down the Ferris wheel, we would be only given two pods side by side and we would have to uh shoot while they were also onloading and offloading other tourists that's insane how would you get the permit you have to get everyone's permission don't you like if they're well so yeah so you put up you put up signs it's sort of how it works you put up signs basically saying like we we you are now entering a place where cameras are rolling you by entering this space you will have your face on camera they're also they're also quite blurred but we had so the ferris wheel scene was really tricky because it was all timed to by the time that the conversation ends we had to be coming through the gate in order for the the bit of us going through again that gag of like uh uh-oh we're going to be stuck on this thing to work (laughs) yeah himesh was not happy about that at all himesh was not happy the character (laughs) (laughs) and and so what we went two days prior and we rehearsed the scene on the ferris wheel over and over and over again so we could actually time when does the camera need to start rolling on the trajectory of the ferris wheel in order to time the scene so that it ends two loops and ends with us going through the gate. Okay. There was more to that scene that ended up getting trimmed out for time. But in my in my dream world, I wanted to essentially have the ability to play that scene as a wonder. Mm. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, like, or at least be able to sit on characters for really long periods of time and not have to worry about continuity. Yeah. So part of it was the continuity of knowing that we were shooting Himesh's side and knowing that we were shooting coverage on, on Ruth and I and, and the, where we were had to line up as oh we God. did the scene. So it was oh this God. like unbelievably intricate rehearsal period. We figured it out. We figured it all out. And then we hear you're going to have to just wait in line and like do it with <laughs> some random, random tourists who like, you know, came from a waffle stand. And, and so essentially what had to happen was, and this is the fun of filmmaking. Sure. We had to send our crew into a pod. They had to set it up. They had to light it. Ula was there with a black blanket over himself with only a, a space for the lens. 
<laughs> and a hot water bottle on his feet because it was freezing. <laughs> and essentially, we had to time it so that when the pod came through the gate, Ruth Hamesh and I would get into the pod. Every camera was rolling. Lights were up. We would sit down. We would hit the mark on the trajectory of the Ferris wheel where we knew the scene started and we would start the scene. And oh so God. it was this, it was Real. so thrilling for as crazy and chaotic as the whole experience was. Those are the moments where you think this is, this is like fun. This is yeah. fun. Yeah. 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 That's wow. amazing. Oh so my did God. You, did you, you, do, did you do it in one, in a one and then just yeah, cut yeah, it? We, Oh, so you did, yeah. it was the one shot. Wow. It was That's all timed. Like if you were to, man. if you were to pull wow. the, if you were to pull the footage apart, every shot was, was oh. done as a one -er. That's insane. Um, we should release the raw of that. I would love to see just the raw of the one. -er. Well, there's, there's a whole other story that Ruth tells on that Ferris wheel, which was so painful to cut because oh. she is so extraordinary. And, you know, Getting into edit, there's very little editing in this movie, frankly. I, I, I really wanted to sit with these actors for as long as I possibly could. I didn't want, I didn't want pace to be something that I was scared about. It was about performance. It was about mm -hmm. lingering on people's faces to the point of, of almost un uncomfortable, like mm. discomfort. And, you know, first of all, the camera loves Ruth Nega's face. It is, it's unbelievable. And so any chance I could get to just stay on her mm, yeah. and let her do her thing, what she did on that Ferris wheel, aside from what made it in the movie was, was, was just, um, just incredible. Um, well, Dan, we yeah. can't thank you enough for coming on and, yeah. and taking the time to talk with us. I hope we hit you with a few you hadn't heard yet <laughs> during this press tour. It was such tour. a thrill to come and do this. I, yeah, it's, it was just such a thrill. So thank you so much for having me. Great. You are welcome back, back anytime. Yeah. yeah I will be anytime. back sooner than later. I promise. Oh, thanks, Excellent. Dan. We want to thank our good friends at Netflix and of course, Dan Levy for joining the show. I sincerely hope that he comes back and I really do hope to see uh, what he does next as a director. I could see him very easily transitioning out into another genre now that he's sort of got his feet wet, figured out how to maneuver through the process, the difficult process of being a writer director. Um, and he has such interest in obviously comedy of which there's some comedy in good grief uh, mixed through, but it is definitely more of an emotional ride um, with his character exploring some, some complicated steps that we all have to go through when we lose a loved one, especially around the holidays. The holidays play a very significant part of this. I have heard some people talk about the fact that good grief is going to become like an annual Christmas tradition for them. And I get that because the Christmas does play a significant part of it. It's not the type of film that I would want to sort of go back and rewatch at Christmas time. But um, if that's the mood that you're hoping to to get, I could see how that could sort of provide this for you. I really just enjoyed that it didn't fall into um, the voice of him sort of recreating his Schitt's Creek persona. Uh, he's very clearly has other things to say and do as a storyteller, which is why I'm interested to see where he goes in it. And I thought he put together a great cast. I thought uh, Ruth Nega was fantastic in this film. Uh, Himesh Patel was fantastic in his film, in this new film. And um, and I, I particularly wanted to. That's why I'm glad I brought up the roller coaster story for Dan, because it seems like a very simple 
um, sequence that you would have to get for the conversations that are being held in the moment and the things that the characters have to get through uh, in the scene. But the way that he shoots it, you could tell he's got a, a, a better eye for for visuals and for um, technical aspects than I assumed. Um, and uh, and I'm excited to see him explore that aspect a little bit more. So if you haven't seen it yet uh, and you've made it this far, uh, make sure you go over to Netflix, put on Good Grief, check it out. It's a, a really good film. And I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it for sure. Um, you're going to want to keep it on Cinema Blend. Uh, I had teased a little while ago on social media that we got to sit down with Celine Song, whose amazing film from last year, Past Lives, uh, is getting a lot of awards recognition, ton of nominations, uh, and she was an amazing, amazing conversation. Uh, it's tough to talk to her because she'd been doing so many interviews up to this point. Past Lives had its debut at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival and then has been uh, flying on the radar ever since then with you know people getting to get her to break down aspects of the film. I do think we got into a couple of different um, corners of, the, of Past Lives that she hadn't discussed yet. And she told us an amazing, amazing story about one of my favorite scenes in in the film. So I'm going to leave that for you guys to discover on Friday when the main show drops. Uh, thank you, of course, for joining us on our YouTube channel. If you're here, uh, hit subscribe, turn on your notifications. You'll be the first ones to hear when we drop new content on Real Blend. In the meantime, subscribe to Real Blend Premium, get you an ad free version of the show and a newsletter from me. Um, and just keep it here on Rimblin for all of your cinematic needs. We always appreciate hearing from you guys. We hope you enjoyed this week's interview, and we look forward to bringing you plenty more great content in 2024. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.